morning again. It's nice to have the ladies home from the retreat from last week. I understand it was a great time, but it's even better for us men and husbands to have you home. So I think it makes us appreciate you all the more. Uh, And yes, that is an assignment for everyone that uh, February 14th is an assignment. Your homework for the parenting course is date night. So whether you're taking the parenting course or not, if you're married here, investing in your marriage is always a good thing. So I recommend that for you as well. Now today we're going to be wrapping up our series on living in a prophetic age. In this series, we have been focusing on specific prophecies pertaining to Israel and how they have been being fulfilled in our time, leaving little doubt that the stage is being set for the final act of history. Of course, with that being said, we must also take note that God is not in a hurry. He will not be rushed by any human timetable. He will do what he has said he will do exactly when he intends to do it, and not a minute sooner or a minute later. God is at work. He will do what he has said, and of that we can be certain. Now, of this final day, C.S. Lewis wrote, When the author walks onto the stage... The play is over. And we must recognize when we are looking ahead to the day of the Lord, this is the final act of this age of history. When the author walks into the stage, the play is over. And so it will be when Jesus returns. Let's bow together and let's pray. Lord Jesus, we anticipate this day when you enter this world once more. And we recognize that this age of history will come to an end. There will be no more days of decision remaining. There will be no more days of grace. It will be the day of judgment. And it will be a day where those who have longed for your appearing will be overjoyed. We will be so ecstatic to see you finally face to face. And yet, Lord, we also recognize it will be a day of fear and trembling for those who are not prepared for your return. And so, Father, we pray that this morning as we hear from your word, a challenging word, that we would have receptive hearts, receptive minds to hear the challenge within your word, to consider not only what it means for us personally, but also consider what it means for the world and the part that you want us to play in that. And so I ask that you would speak through these words, through me, your servant, I pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Now, millions of Christians around the world have been anticipating the moment of Jesus' return since he left. In fact, the debate has raged on ever since Jesus ascended from the Mount of Olives. How soon will he return? How quickly will he come back? Even the disciples, the apostles, anticipated, looked for his return in their day. Of course, they lived and they died, and many more have come and gone since them. After 14 years of studying the Bible, a man named William Miller became convinced that he had figured out that Christ would return in the year 1843. When Miller announced that April 3rd was the exact day of the event, some of his followers went up to mountaintops, hoping for a head start to heaven. Others went to graveyards, planning to ascend in reunion with their departed loved ones. The Philadelphia Ladies' Society 
clustered together outside of town to avoid entering God's kingdom amid the common herd of the unwashed masses. But when April 3rd came and went, and the morning of April 4th dawned as usual, the Millerites were disillusioned, but they took heart. Their leader had predicted a range of dates for Christ's return, but when two more dates came and went without his return, they were left disappointed, confused, and disillusioned. Ultimately, many of them turned not only from following William Miller, but from faith in Jesus Christ. And this single story highlights the vast amount of stories like it that have happened in the time since Jesus left this earth. There has been so much speculation and confusion surrounding Jesus' return to this earth. Similar failed prophecies have played out numerous times since then, as many have seemed to miss Jesus' own words when he said, No one knows the day or the hour, only the Father. But nevertheless, people keep trying to predict when Jesus will return. And this is far from a new phenomenon. In fact, we discover that this was already happening way back in the first century church of Thessalonica. So I want you to take your Bibles, turn there with me this morning to 2 Thessalonians chapter 2. It's a very challenging passage, but it is one that is full of truth, many of which unique details are not found elsewhere in Scripture. 2 Thessalonians chapter 2, and there let's refresh the reading Jamie did for us earlier with verses 1 to 3. Concerning the coming of our Lord Jesus Christ and our being gathered to him, we ask you, brothers and sisters, not to become so easily shaken or alarmed by the teachings supposed to have come from us, whether by a prophecy or by word of mouth or by letter, asserting that the day of the Lord has already come. Don't let anyone deceive you in any way. So we're going to stop there and ask the question, what is going on here? What is happening? Let's give a little background first. The church in the city of Thessalonica was one of several churches that was established by the Apostle Paul as he went about on his missionary journeys. Now, having planted this church, he had carried on since then, and he continued to teach and correct them through correspondence, principally through letters or by word of mouth through other disciples that he would send to them. Now, it appears that somewhere after Paul having left them, that an imposter claiming to be the Apostle Paul had written the church in Thessalonica a letter telling them that the day of the Lord had already come and that somehow they had missed it. So news of all of the, the subsequent confusion gets back to Paul and he sends them this letter to correct this false teaching and to give them further teaching to clarify events pertaining to Jesus' return. Now these instructions apply just as much, if not more, to us today. So let's look at them. The first instruction he gives is this. Do not become easily shaken or alarmed. Now, I know some people, even Christians, who actually avoid this subject altogether about the second coming of Jesus Christ because it quite simply scares them. They're scared by the terrible events that are going to take place in this last age. They're scared about perhaps somehow missing out on it or, or the order of things is confusing to them. And so they just say, you know what, I'm just not going to think about it. I'm going to avoid it altogether. Now, on one level, I can understand this thinking because the truth is there are some downright frightening things 
that have to take place from within prophecy. And of course, I'd rather not have to think about persecution, apostasy, falling away from the faith, or tribulation either. But the problem with this approach is avoiding or not thinking about the last days and Jesus' return won't stop it from happening. The proverbial ostrich burying his head in the sand isn't going to stop anything, is it? So yes, maybe in the meantime, living in ignorance will help us sleep at night, but that is not what God wants for us. It's just like people who are afraid of death. They're afraid of dying, and so they refuse to even think about their own mortality. That, yes, we will die someday, unless the Lord returns earlier. And so they refuse to make final preparations. They refuse to make spiritual preparations for what comes after death. They'd rather not think about it because it's unpleasant. But you see, God wants his children, he wants us not to be ignorant. He wants us to be fully prepared for what is coming. And this is why there are over 1,800 references in the Old Testament and more than 300 references in the New Testament to the day of the Lord and his return. From the multitude of these references, it's obvious that God's strategy for the church, for Christians, for us to not be shaken or alarmed is not by avoiding the subject, not by skipping over prophecy. Instead, he wants us to be informed. He wants us to be ready. Jesus himself gives us the antidote to fear of the last days. He says it in John chapter 14, verses 1 to 3. Do not let your hearts be troubled. Believe in God, believe also in me. In my Father's house are many dwelling places. If it were not so, I would have told you, for I go to prepare a place for you. And if I go and prepare a place for you, I will come again and receive you to myself, that where I am, there you may be also. Here's Jesus' promise to his followers. Yes, we are living in troubled times, with more troubles on the horizon. But just beyond those troubles, just beyond that horizon, Jesus promises a forever home with him, prepared by him. And for this reason, the Christian has nothing to fear. Every earthly trial and tribulation, no matter how severe, no matter how intense, remember, it is temporary, and it will pass. So do not let your hearts be troubled. Do not be easily shaken or alarmed. Through faith in Jesus Christ, our salvation, our eternal home, is secure. Number two of Paul's instruction. The first, do not be alarmed. Number two, do not be deceived. Do not let anyone deceive you, he says, in any way. As we already learned, the Thessalonians had received a forged letter claiming to be from Paul, which deceived them, tricked them into believing that they had somehow missed Jesus' return. Now, stop and think about that for a minute. That's a pretty nasty trick, isn't it? To actually forge a letter from Paul to make them think they'd missed out on the biggest event of history. Now, when we think about someone impersonating someone, forging them, think about social media today. What's one of the great threats in social media? Identity theft, having your profile somehow stolen and used by someone else. We've heard about in recent weeks how this has been happening in a grand scale way with Twitter, where celebrities who want to have more followers to make them look more important 
They've actually been buying forged profiles from a company who's been stealing and making up fake profiles from other people to make it look like they had more Twitter followers. Crazy world we live in. This is what's going on today. We also saw a news story a couple of weeks back. Actually, I think it was even last week where someone made a fake Donald Trump account, made people believe that it was him and started tweeting things out. And people, of course, started sharing this. And, of course, it got debunked. But at that point, everyone had already shared it and people believed this was actually Donald Trump. Now, why are people doing things like that? Well, in the case of the person forging Donald Trump, they wanted to subvert him. They wanted to cast him in a worse light because they were against him. And so on this level, when we think about who would have tried to forge the Apostle Paul, who did it? We don't know exactly who, but we know that the intention would have been to undermine Paul's credibility in a desire to subvert the church, to deceive them to their own teaching and way of thinking. Now, who did this? We don't know. But one thing we can know for certain is who was behind it. The Lord Jesus warned about him in John chapter 8 and verse 44. Satan, who was a murderer from the beginning, not holding to the truth, for there is no truth in him. When he lies, he speaks his native language, for he is a liar and the father of lies. Satan is a master of deception, and he specializes in creating confusion and chaos. Of course, his favorite target has always been and will be since Jesus has left the church. Because we are the ambassadors of Christ. We are God's army, as we sang this morning. We are his disciples, marching out in his name. Who does he want to stop if he wants to further his agenda? Us, the church, believers. One of the primary ways he does that is by sowing seeds of discord and confusion within the body. Because if he can subvert the church, if he can get us somehow deceived or confused or outright destroyed, if he can get us out of the way, then he can essentially have free reign to do whatever he wants to corrupt, deceive, and destroy the nations. In fact, the Bible teaches us that one of the chief characteristics of the last days will be the presence of false teachers. The false teachers will be followed by a mass exodus of Christians leaving the faith. 1 Timothy chapter 4, verses 1 and 2 says this. The Spirit clearly says that in latter times, some will abandon the faith and follow deceiving spirits and things taught by demons. Such teachings come through hypocritical liars whose consciences have been seared as with a hot iron. Now, I don't think we have to look very far today. I don't think we have to look very hard to see how Satan is spreading deception within the church. I don't need to give any examples at this point. We'll get into some a little bit later on. But he is spreading deception. And the question we have to ask ourselves is, how can we keep from being deceived? How can we keep from being deceived by this master of deception? In 2 Thessalonians 2 verse 15, Paul writes this. In the conclusion of this letter or this, pardon me, this portion of the letter, he says this. So then, brothers, stand firm and hold to the teachings we passed on to you, whether by word of mouth or by letter. So here's the first way not to be deceived. He says, stand firm. Stand firm. That means 
don't get bullied or lectured or shamed from the truth. This is one of the great tactics of the enemy is to say, hey, you should feel bad about holding to the truth. Look at you. Look at you, old-fashioned bad person for holding on to the truth of God's word because you're making other people feel bad. They try to shame us from holding to the truth. He says, stand firm. Don't be bullied from God's word and from holding to it. Secondly, he says, hold on to the teachings we passed on to you. This means, if we're going to hold on to the teachings that Paul passed on, we must know the authentic from the fake. Now, a signature identification expert will tell you, the best way to identify a forgery, the best way to identify a fake autograph is to study the original. And Paul makes this exact point in the conclusion of his letter in 2 Thessalonians 3, verse 17. Right in the final paragraph of his letter to them, he says, I, Paul, write this greeting to you in my own hand, which is the distinguishing mark in all my letters. This is how I write. So here Paul is not only saying, look at my handwriting, look at my distinguishing mark to make sure that this letter is authentic, but look for this in any future letters. For if they lack my distinguishing mark, you can just dismiss it immediately. Know the fake. Identify the fake by knowing the original. This is a principle for any biblical teaching as well. We can spot the fakes by studying the original. And so today, when preachers or teachers, or motivational speakers, are saying things like, if you give money to my ministry, God will bless you with a new house. Yes, there are guys out there like that. Yes, you can find them on TV fairly quickly. Give money to me, and God will heal you. Give money to my ministry, and God will bless you with a new car. Or, you don't have to look very far to hear things like, since God is loving... No one will go to hell. Another one. It's very prevalent in our age. God only cares about love. So homosexuality is fine with him. Now when we hear these lines, how can we know that these teachings are false? Do we need to study the health and wealth teachings or the universalist doctrine or the so-called LGBTQ2 RST movement to figure this all out? Do we have to look into all these things? Sometimes it's helpful to study, to know what's going on, but in order to figure out if these things are deceptions or not, we don't have to dive deeply into the movements. No, we simply study God's word, and we can very quickly and clearly see that those teachings are false. They are not in alignment with God's word, and in fact, With all of them, God's word would explicitly say the opposite. But the best way to keep from being deceived is to know and to hold on to the truth. So now returning to the text, Paul explains to the Thessalonians that they could not possibly have missed Jesus' second coming because certain things needed to happen first. Let's move on to verses 3 and 4. Don't let anyone deceive you in any way, For that day will not come until the rebellion occurs, and the man of lawlessness is revealed, the man doomed to destruction. Verse 4, he will oppose and will exalt himself over everything that is called God or is worshipped, 
so that he sets himself up in God's temple, proclaiming himself to be God. Now, this man of lawlessness is better known by the title that the Apostle John gave him, which is the Antichrist. In 1 John chapter 2, verse 18, we read what John wrote about him. Dear children, this is the last hour, and as you have heard that the Antichrist is coming, even now many Antichrists have come. This is how we know it is the last hour. John also wrote later in that letter, This is the spirit of the Antichrist, which you have heard is coming, and even now is already in the world. Now, the Antichrist and that name fits him perfectly. For he is described not by what he is for, but by what he is against. And that is Christ. So anything or anyone that is of Christ, by Christ, for Christ, in Christ, or with Christ... The Antichrist will be against. And anything that is of Christ and of his people, he will oppose and do everything in his power to tear it down, to trample it, and to destroy. But that alone won't be good enough for him. He will then seek to take Christ's place and will declare himself to be God. We jump ahead to 2 Thessalonians chapter 2, verses 9 to 10 which goes further in the description of that time, the coming of the lawless one will be in accordance with how Satan works. He will use all sorts of displays of power through signs and wonders that serve the lie. And all the ways that wickedness deceives those who are perishing, they perish, listen to this, they perish because they refused to love the truth and so be saved. Now, there is much speculation and debate surrounding the Antichrist and has been for centuries. Many believed, and with good reason, that the Roman Emperor Nero, who persecuted Christians with a demonic fervor, who did barbaric things, sadistic things, feeding them to lions, using them as human torches to light his gardens, they thought he could well have been the Antichrist that John wrote of. More recently in our times, Others thought that Adolf Hitler most certainly had to be the Antichrist. But here is an important thing to note that John said. Even now, many Antichrists have come. And Paul said in chapter 2, verse 7, For the secret power of lawlessness is already at work, but the one who holds it back will continue to do so till he is taken out of the way. And so here we see that the spirit of Antichrist, empowered by Satan, it's in accordance with the works of Satan, this spirit of Antichrist has been working in the world ever since Jesus ascended back to heaven. See how Satan works? Jesus ascended back to heaven, and whose spirit did he send to his disciples? The Holy Spirit. This was a massive event, the outpouring of the Holy Spirit of God on all believers, fulfilling Joel's prophecy. And what did Satan do to counteract that? The spirit of Antichrist. He poured it out in return to oppose the spirit of God and the things of Christ. And John identifies this has been going on since that day. And this spirit of Antichrist can be embodied by anyone who willfully rejects the truth of God and stands in opposition to Christ. And now, of course, it's easy to see that that men like Nero, Hitler, and Stalin were antichrists of this type. However, what is more difficult to discern is that we also have many antichrists alive and well 
today. Remember, Satan is a master of deception and the father of lies. He's not just going to step out in the open until that day is ready. He hides in the shadows. And once you start looking closely, these who are in agreement with the spirit of Antichrist are plain to see. Those who call evil good and good evil. Those who say that God's created order does not exist. Those who say that sexuality reserved exclusively for a husband and wife is backward. And that of every other perverse deviation is progressive. Those who say that being male or female are not ordained by God, but are simply social constructs, and that there are actually an infinite number of genders that we can choose from. Those who say that killing a baby moments before birth is not murder, but simply a woman's right to choose what she wants to do with her own body, conveniently omitting what about the baby's right to choose what they want to do with their own body. Make no mistake, those who actively champion these deceptions, these lies, are in agreement with the spirit of Antichrist and in step with the secret power of lawlessness that is identified as being already at work in this world. That's the bad news. But here's the good news. The good news is that the Holy Spirit is holding back the full unchecked onslaught of the spirit of Antichrist. And Paul identifies the Spirit of God as holding him back until the day that God has determined that the final Antichrist will appear in the day of tribulation. He will go out to deceive the nations. He will make himself a god. He will force upon people the mark of the beast, without which no one can buy or sell. Those who believe in the name of Jesus Christ will need to resist, and they will be systematically persecuted for a season. But they that endure to the end, those who hold on to the promise, will be rewarded for eternity. Now, of course, Satan loves to make us think that he's the one in charge. That he's the one controlling the agenda. And that there's nothing we can do to stand against the darkness. This is a lie. And to this lie, God laughs. For everything that Satan does is on God's timeline and will ultimately serve to fulfill God's plan. For everything that Satan loves to deceive us with, like that he is God's equal, God laughs at this. Compared to the Almighty, he is just a pawn on the board to be used and discarded. 2 Thessalonians 2 verse 8, I love this verse. Paul sums up what's going to happen to this man of lawlessness. We read this, And then the lawless one will be revealed whom the Lord Jesus will overthrow with the breath of his mouth and destroy by the splendor of his coming. I just love this image because it just glosses right over anything that the Antichrist is going to do in between. Yeah, he's going to come on the scene and he's going to think he's a big deal and he's going to make everyone believe he's a big deal. (laughs) Jesus is going to show up. Is it going to be a big fight? Is there going to be like a straining battle to the finish? Is he going to have to pull out a sword or have nuclear missiles to defeat him? No, he's not even going to have to throw one punch. Paul says he will blow the Antichrist over with the breath of his mouth. Can we even begin to imagine what that's going to look like? For me, the closest I can come is, you know how Superman, he has super breath, And he can use his breath to blow out fires. Has anyone ever seen that in the Superman movies? 
Well, imagine that times a million. Jesus is literally going to blow him away. The breath of his mouth. Ha, you're nothing to me. And the Antichrist claiming to be God, thinking he's a big deal, will be like grass blowing in the wind on that great day of the Lord. Now, while that is incredibly reassuring to me, it is incredibly reassuring to Christians, there is also a stark warning for those who have gone along with the Antichrist's lies. Verse 11. For this reason, God sends them a powerful delusion, so that they will believe the lie, and so that all will be condemned who have not believed the truth, but have delighted in wickedness. I want to be clear. The Bible declares that those who reject the truth of God and do not believe in Jesus Christ as Savior will be deceived. And so they will fall under God's condemnation and judgment. Those who delight in wickedness. We don't have to look very far in the world to see people delighting in wickedness, do we? In 1 Thessalonians chapter 1, verses 7-9, to 9, Paul makes this as plain as day. When the Lord Jesus is revealed from heaven in blazing fire with his powerful angels, he will punish those who do not know God and do not obey the gospel of our Lord Jesus. They will be punished with everlasting destruction and shut out from the presence of the Lord and from the majesty of his power. This is the word of God. We can scoff at it. We can argue it, we can dismiss it, or we can try to soften it all we like. But on that day that Jesus Christ is revealed, not one argument, not one excuse, not one justification for having rejected him will stand. Those who do not know God will be shut out from his presence forever. But is the world listening to God's warnings? The Danish philosopher Kierkegaard tells a parable of a theater where a variety show is proceeding. Each show is more fantastic than the last and is applauded by the audience. But suddenly, in the midst of this, the manager comes forward. He apologizes for the interruption, but gives a stark warning. The theater is on fire, and he begs the patrons to leave by the exits in an orderly fashion. The audience thinks this is the most amusing turn of events. They begin to cheer thunderously, thinking this is an act. The manager again implores them, no, this is no act. Leave the burning building. It is on fire. And he is again applauded vigorously. His fervor, his passion, how impressive. At last, giving one more warning, please leave now. He left, racing down the hall and out the building. All the while, the audience loving it, cheering, hooting, and hollering. And so concluded Kierkegaard, will our age, I sometimes think, go down in fiery destruction to the applause of a crowded house of cheering spectators? It is a sad thing to consider that on that great and fearful day, how many people will say, I thought it would never come. Make no mistake, that will be the day of judgment, not the day of decision. Years ago, an S-4 submarine was rammed by a ship off the coast of Massachusetts. It sank immediately, and the entire crew was trapped in this prison house. And every effort was made to rescue them, but all failed. 
And near the end of the ordeal, a diver placed his helmet ear to the side of the vessel, and he heard a tapping from inside. He recognized it as Morse code. It was a question forming slowly. Is there any hope? Is there any hope? And friends, I want you to hear this today. By God's incredible grace and his love for you, today is a day of decision. And so there is hope. Today is not yet the day of judgment. Today is the day of decision. Today can be a day of salvation. Today can be a day that we stop rejecting the truth. Today can be a day that we choose to believe the word of life, to repent of sin, to place faith in Jesus Christ, and to obey his leading for our life. And if you say yes to Jesus, the final verse of this passage applies to you. Verses 13 to 14. But we ought also to thank God for you, brothers and sisters, loved by the Lord, because God chose you as first fruits to be saved through the sanctifying work of the Spirit and through belief in the truth. He called you to this through our gospel that you might share in the glory of our Lord Jesus Christ. Now, I can't speak for anyone else here today, but one thing that I desire more than anything else is to share in the glory of Jesus Christ. There's a lot of things that I want from this life, but there's nothing I want more than this, than to be found in Christ on that day. That is everything for me. That is number one, to be found in Christ on that day. And the second desire that I have only to that one is that I desire each and every one of you listening today to be found in Christ on that day. My hope is that this motivates all of us to make Jesus known to those in your life who don't yet know him. For the only person that you will never again meet in heaven is someone who doesn't believe in Jesus Christ. But today they are all around us. And so may the Lord infuse us with a holy sense of urgency to reach them. May we not be alarmed. May we not be deceived. But may we stand firm in the truth. May we live in the power of the Spirit and anticipate the day that we will see Jesus and that we will be found in him, secure in the truth. Let's pray. Father, this is your word. And it is powerful. It is sharper than any two-edged sword. And so, Father, I pray that by your spirit, if you are penetrating anyone's heart today, with the truth of your word. Would you, by the spirit of grace and supplication, would you remove the barriers that we've placed against you and your truth? May we simply and freely submit and say, yes, Lord, your word is true, and I want to be found in the truth, in full obedience to it, so that I can be found in Christ on that last day. And Father, for those of us who know we are secure in your truth, sealed by the Spirit, our sins have been forgiven. We are your children. I pray, O Lord, that that coming day would infuse in us a great sense of purpose and urgency 
that we would be about the spreading of the truth in this dark age. This is still a day of decision. It's still a day of grace. And you have still given us work to do to further your kingdom. And so, Father, may we be faithful in putting our hands to the plow, moving ahead, not looking back, only looking ahead at you. Help us each to be faithful in what you have called us to. In Jesus' name I pray. Amen.